Welcome back, everyone, for another episode of the AltMed podcast series. It's Andrew Dowling here, my co-host, Mitch Kurtz, and we Hello. are joined. We've been looking forward to this episode for a long time now. I know we've only been doing this for a little while, but we've got David Fang, Dr. David Fang, um, the co-founder of Canadoc, on this episode, and we are going to tap into David's wealth of knowledge as a GP with a special interest in medical cannabis. Um, David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Always have some fantastic chats with you and um, always look forward to hearing what's going on in, uh, in your experience in the uh, industry. Um, is there anything uh, we might have missed you'd like to add to a little bit of your uh, kind of introduction? Well, I was just thinking if anyone out there is enjoying the podcast series so far, then we would encourage you to like the podcast um we've got a page on facebook now i'm led to believe um so please tell your friends about it we really hope it's a useful informational resource for you and, and for your network and if there's any information that you want us to talk about on the podcast just hit us up and uh we're always open ears to um to suggestions so um yeah i think we might just dive straight in so mitch i'm gonna let you kick this one off absolutely well Seeing as we have our first GP uh, on camera now, uh, I guess we're really looking at what you're experiencing on a day-to-day basis when you're working in a um, as your in your capacity as a GP, directing people to cannabis products or or dealing with people with different indications that are coming specifically for medicinal cannabis, and and we want to know a little bit about maybe first start with an overview of the types of indications or the things that people are coming to see you about as a very general step? Okay. Well, I guess um, because we run a predominantly sort of medicinal cannabis driven clinic uh, in, in, um, in Australia, uh, basically in Melbourne, um, we, we often take a lot of referrals from uh, doctors and, and patients sometimes self-refer um, uh, for all sorts of different indications. Uh, the most common indication we usually see in our clinic is uh, chronic pain, some sort of uh, chronic pain that, that's that been there for a long, long period of time and it's not responding to traditional frontline therapies. Um, and I would say like two thirds of our patients or, or more would probably have some sort of chronic pain component to, to their um, symptomatology. Mm. Um, and, and anyone who's gone through chronic pain will also know that, you know, when you have a lot of chronic pain, you also have a whole bunch of other symptoms that, that tend to coincide together. You know, uh, chronic pain tends to wear people down emotionally uh, and, and uh, physically as well. So they get a lot, you know, a lot of fatigue, they have trouble sleeping, they'll often have anxiety and depression with it. Um, so it's often, you know, a, a myriad of different symptoms that we're, we're treating. But I would say the overwhelming majority uh, would be chronic pain based. After chronic pain, we're... Um, the next most common indication is probably anxiety, anxiety plus or minus depression. Um, there is a lot of uh, psychological uh, symptoms that we, we use medicinal cannabis for, uh, including uh, PTSD, um, sometimes you know uh, behavioral issues and autism in, in children. We, we, we're seeing good results in um, insomnia. We're also seeing a lot of uh, movement disorders that respond quite well to medicinal cannabis, like uh, Parkinson's disease, uh, Tourette's, um, multiple sclerosis is probably the, the, the biggest one um, that, that tends to respond to that. And uh, a small proportion of our patients will end up being, um, unfortunately, uh, palliative care patients or, or, or patients who've, who've um, undergone treatment for cancer therapy. So like chemotherapy and, and they get like a lot of severe nausea and vomiting. Um, that tends to be uh, um, a symptom that, that is well-treated with medicinal cannabis. Yeah. So those, those will probably be the, the biggest ones off the top of my head. Yeah. That's uh, yeah. It sounds pretty consistent with the information we hear from the, the medical community, especially we had, Asper from DeCasa on a couple of weeks ago said a very similar thing was really kind of in that, in that um, chronic pain and then anxiety sleep realm. Uh, A lot of people coming for kind of insomnia, those types of, um, 
those types of things. Yeah, mm. In your experience dealing with, with chronic pain and, and all the, um, the aforementioned uh, indications, do you see what's the kind of breakdown that you're seeing between THC and CBD in terms of what you would prescribe? Is it more THC dominant stuff, CBD dominant? Is it a hybrid? What are the, yeah, can you just take us through that? Yeah, I, I like to think about the different products into, you know, four distinct categories, you know. Um, uh, first and foremost, I like to think of CBD in an isolate form. So just purified CBD without any of the other cannabinoids in there. Um, and I like that one because it's got no THC in it. Um, and it's pretty purified and, and, and you, you don't run the risk of, uh, you know, driving or um, cognitive impairment with the THC. So uh, anyone who you know, is telling me that, that I have to drive, I'll probably say, look, the only one that we can safely put you on from a legal perspective is CBD, um, probably in the form of an isolate because um, CBD that has sm you know, small traces of THC may be detectable in a uh, driving test. So I, I think about CBD alone um, in an isolate, I often use that in um, anxiety, uh, patients with anxiety or sometimes um, sleep disturbance, uh, it, it works quite well for. Uh, it also works really well in children where you, you don't know what the safe level of THC use is. Um, and, and I mean, I, I've treated quite a, um, a number of children with autism uh, or, or ADHD. And, and, you know, CBD tends to work quite well for these behavioral type um, symptoms and, 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 and autistic children. Um, CBD alone can also be really good in um, severe epilepsy in children. Um, as an isolate uh, and um, but unfortunately the doses for that are, are significantly higher than what an adult would take for say anxiety so I, I think about the isolate as number one number two would be uh, CBD predominant preparations um, or, or full spectrum um, CBD oil where you may it may contain a little bit of THC in it uh, I like those ones you know as I find those ones to be superior than CBD isolate um, but I generally don't recommend those if people are using um, or, or wanting to drive with it. Um, but I would, I would, that would be my front line for, again, the anxiety um, or mood disturbance type issues. Um, CBD as a full spectrum or broad spectrum um, is also very good uh, for fibromyalgia. So that's one of those chronic pain conditions that, that doesn't tend to respond to um, traditional frontline therapies, but re responds really well to medicinal cannabis, even just as a CBD isolate or, or full spectrum, broad spectrum CBD. So that's that's category two. And then category three is probably the most popular um, or most frequently prescribed uh, um, preparation. And that would be like a one-to-one -one ratio of CBD to THC. And those patients, you know, that preparation I'd use predominantly for chronic pain issues. Um, so fibromyalgia works really well for, it works really well for, um, all sorts of, um, chronic pains, like, um, whether it be uh, neuropathic pain or, um, sort of, uh, mechanical type pains like your osteoarthritis or, um, yeah, uh, musculoskeletal type pains. Uh, that's a one-to-one -one ratio works really well for as well. Um, a one-to-one -one ratio also works really well for, sleep issues um you know chronic insomnia um, it also works really well for multiple sclerosis you know where people have a multiple sclerosis it's, it's the classical symptoms are a lot of pain chronic pain as well as muscular spasticity you know a lot of muscle spasms across the body and um the thc in that helps with the the pain as well as the spasticity spasticity at the same time so they that a lot of people get really good relief from um, from from those symptoms with, with a one-to-one -one ratio. And then I think about the last uh, category is the high THC, very low CBD type um, preparations. And, and I would use those uh, where, you know, pain levels are exceedingly high and, and they're not really responding well to a one-to-one -one ratio. So, you know, you would step up that sort of um, ladder of um, therapy. And the high THC is really good for, you know, cancer pain, um, it, it can be really good for um, sleep because because THC can also often be, um, it can induce drowsiness and, and people can sleep a lot better when, when they take it. Um, and, and high THC concentration is sometimes really good for severe neuropathic pain as well, where, where the one-to-one -one ratio hasn't worked very well. Um, yeah, so those, those are probably, I would split, split 
um, the different preparations uh, along those four main groups. Well, that, that's really, really helpful, David. And I, I'm picking up on, you know, when a patient comes to see you and you're trying to figure out which of those four products might be suitable for them, going back a step to this issue you raised before where a patient needs to have failed a first-line therapy, I think most people out there can probably get their head around the concept of somebody being prescribed, say, an opioid for pain and, and that and not responding very well to that. But are there other reasons such as side effects that can say, you know, open up the possibility of medical cannabis treatment? And, and perhaps maybe you can just speak to that issue of the first line therapy failing and, and some of your clinical observations with that. Yeah. And, and this is a guidance from the TGA, the Therapeutic Goods Administration. You know, they, they don't want doctors prescribing medicinal cannabis as a frontline therapy. Um, they don't specify exactly how many treatments you've had to have tried and failed or whether you've had, you would have needed to justify any side effects and things like that. But what tends to happen is when you access um, medicinal cannabis for patients, you actually have to justify to the TGA as to why you're using this um, in the form of an application, a TGA application, and you have to get a permit for the patient before they can access it. So in your justification, um, say if a patient came in with chronic pain, you know, fibromyalgia or whatever, um, oftentimes these patients have had the pain or, or symptoms for long, long enough. They've tried you know, a myriad of things under the sun, you know, um, paracetamol, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Um, uh, they would have tried maybe steroid injections. They may have tried um, opiates. They may have tried um, uh, anti-epileptics or anti-seizure medications that, that are useful for um, neuropathic pain um, and, and other neuropathic pain medications like Lyrica, Gabapentin, that sort of thing. So, you know, if you you know, have two, three, four things that the patient's tried. Um, if, if they've only got partial relief or they get side effects from it and you feel like their quality of life is still not good despite these therapies, then yeah, you can absolutely make a justification to the TGA that, you know, you want to try this for um, your patients. And it's up to the TGA to decide whether that is a good enough justification. Mm. Um, so, and, and sometimes, you know, uh, as simple as, you know, um, I, the patient getting side effects or the patient being t like really worried about this medication, being um, having to take this medication for long-term and whether it might be addictive or, or, or worried about its potential side effects, that might be enough of a justification to the TGA for, for the TGA to say, yes, and we're happy for you to try this. Um, it doesn't have to have, you don't have to have gone through, you know, half a dozen different opiates or, you know, half a dozen different um, pills that, that potentially could give you side effects before you... Um, you, you qualify for that. Um, yeah. and, and the other, the other example I'd like to give is, um, say for anxiety, you know, um, a lot of, we see a lot of patients that respond really well to medicinal cannabis. And in order to get that justification, it's not like we try to make up, you know, I have, I have to be very careful here. Uh, it's not like we're trying to come up with reasons to get patients on medicinal cannabis, but if we see a justification in our consultation, then we'd be like, you know, that makes a lot of sense. You've tried a few things. It didn't work maybe this, this is the next thing to try. Um, and, and when we say, when we talk about anxiety, you know, you know classically, uh, a lot of patients have tried meditation, they've tried exercise, they've tried um, seeing their psychologist for, you know, cognitive behavioral therapies or other therapies. Um, then they have, may have tried um, antidepressant medications, SSRIs, that sort of SNRIs, other medications that, that can help with anxiety. Um, they don't have to hit every everything on that list before they get, before you say, you know, um, we're going to try for an application for you, but you have to be pragmatic about it. I think you just have to say, um, if you've only, the only thing you've ever tried is exercise or the only thing you've ever tried is, is meditation, that might not be enough to justify it. But if you, if you put a cluster of two, three, four different things that you've tried and you've genuinely given it a shot and it's not worked for you, then, you know, uh, I think the TG are pretty, um, open to uh, you explore, our, our patients exploring medicinal cannabis. Yeah, and it's also it's it's interesting how each of those um, alternative pathways that, or maybe a, a word it differently, those alternative treatment options, exercise, dieting, um, cognitive behavioral therapy. I mean, surely at each point 
um, where that was considered for that patient, that is itself, there is a, you know, a clinical justification to be had there. So it represents perhaps mm-hmm. just another juncture in the clinical treatment of a given patient. But mm-hmm. then let's say that the TGA does approve um, someone uh, getting access to medical cannabis um, because the doctor has justified um, the case. Uh, I guess my next question is around what that looks like. So for example, if you have a patient who might have dependency upon opioids, do you tend to run the cannabis treatment in tandem or in concurrent with that opioid treatment? Or is the idea that you substitute out the opioids and and sort of phase in the cannabis if it's working? How how does that actually look? Because I imagine that's fraught with um, some difficulties with, you know, patients withdrawing from say antidepressants or opioid medicines how, how does that look in the clinical context yeah that's a good question uh i when, when people are using opiates long term there's almost certainly going to be some degree of dependency or um tolerance you know they're going to need it's very common for patients to need higher and higher doses to get same effect uh with opiates um and and same with benzodiazepines and and, and they often develop um a dependency to it and, and you can't stop these medications um like cold turkey otherwise people will go through withdrawals and they'll feel miserable and they can be and they can make themselves quite sick so what i like to do is keep the patient on the same opiate regime or a benzodiazepine regime, whatever it might be, and just add low doses of medicinal cannabis um, and see if we can get some improvements in their symptomatology. Um, you know, maybe reduce their pain level a little bit, maybe improve their appetite, maybe um, improve their sleep a little bit, and then get them to a new equilibrium where they're feeling better in themselves. And then, you know, once we've optimized the medicinal cannabis side of things, then we can really start thinking about ta- um, tapering off um, their other medications. Um, opiates is one that you, opiates and benzos are, are, are ones that you want to do that slowly on um, just because yeah. of the risk of withdrawals. Um, and, and most people, you know, will do that quite safely once you get the medicinal cannabis on board at a right level, they can then sort of titrate off um and i've seen people do it quite successfully time and time and again Mm. and unfortunately even if you warn patients a lot of patients because they can get such good benefit from medicinal cannabis and i'm not i'm not saying that it it works for everybody okay like um it does work for a large you know a large proportion of um of patients but the patients that it works really well in um there's there's often a an issue with a patient wanting to stop everything really quickly because they feel so much better with it um you know, opiates, benzos, they all have um, potential risk for side effects and, and things like that and, and like constipation, drowsiness, that sort of thing. And, um, and people want to come off it quite quickly and, and you have to actually warn them that, no, you, you try and maintain the same regime you've been on. You know, they've probably been on this regime for years. You need to stay on this until, um, until we've had a further discussion to, to slowly wean you off it. And, and once, they, once they understand that, then it's pretty straightforward. That's really... Um... That's really quite good. I realize I'm, I'm taking the microphone for a bit, Mitch. I'll throw to you for the next one. But I just had a question about um, that. You hear reports of, of people sort of who have maybe tried um, CBD or med- medicinal cannabis overseas. Um, they, you know, um, enjoyed it. It might have helped a, a condition, but then they realize that, you know, perhaps the, the regulatory structure for getting access to it in Australia is a bit harder. Um, just from a, a doctor's perspective, I'm just interested. Have you come across this in your your practice where someone says, you know, I've the reason I've come to you is because I've tried CBD or something else overseas, and um, is it is that a basis upon which you could provide a clinical justification for a patient, or is that a bit more in the the grey area? Having tried it in the past, um, or, or sorry, just- I say as well, a black market as well, perhaps might fit yeah. this discussion too. Yeah. Um, to me, if someone's tried it in the past and they've had, you know, done really well on it or, or they don't didn't get any side effects from it, 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 it helps me make a decision as to, you know, would this work well for you? Um, and, and so, yes, it, it helps with the clinical judgment side of things, but, you know, we still have to abide by the TGA guidance, you know, and you still have to make a justification to the TGA that uh, there are not, there aren't any simple basic um, therapies out there that the patient can access in Australia 
that um, that allows them to get the same sort of effects. Mm. Um, and and I, look, I see, I hear this all the time. You know, pa- patients are accessing CBD oil or, or you know CBD THC oil um, uh, either overseas or they're buying it, you know, online and they're getting it shipped out into Australia and trying and and, doing, and getting some really good results from it. Um, and I say, great, but you're doing it illegally and we can't condone that sort of thing. And we still, ha- we still have to, as, as practitioners, still abide by what um, the TGA uh, has guided us to do. And, um, and, and we still have to, you know, base it on evidence-based um, therapy. Yeah, so uh, there, 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 is, there is a bit of an, uh, a, a gray area in, in that regard. But we, yeah, I, I still like to show to the TGA that the patient has tried and failed other therapies first. Yeah, yeah. I can't, I can't imagine you could go on the um, the SASB portal and just say, "Oh yeah, the patient has had cannabis in uh, in the Netherlands. Um, <laughs> hook him up down here." <laughs> kind of yeah, thing. exactly. Yeah, the patient smoked some. He felt great, and yeah, we, we're going <laughs> to give him some now. I don't think it's going to work that way. Yeah, yeah. not for <laughs> not until it becomes uh, recreationally legal. I think. Yeah. In in saying that, um, obviously, you do find that there is a difference between um you know some illegal products legal products obviously some are not what they purport to be um now looking more in the legal market which you've got much more experience experience with without getting into any brand specifically do you see quite a bit of variance in the products that are actually in that market in terms of how effective they are or seemingly anecdotally efficacious they are yeah actually that's um that's a really good point you raise, and, and, and yes, the short answer is yes. Um, depending on the genetics of the plant that they derive the medicinal cannabis oil or flower from, um, you can get quite varying results. And um, at the moment, it's very it's it's a lot of trial and error to try and find the right you know cultivar or strain for the patient that works best for them, you know, not, e- not even just going back to the ratio of the CBD to THC for the patient's using, but the, even the brands, you know, um, we just don't have enough um, scientific know-how or, or, or research that's been done to show which strain will work best for which specific condition or in which um, patient demographic. So right now it's really just trial and error. You know, we, we try one brand, uh, at one concentration, if that doesn't work really well, work well, we may may switch to a, a different concentration. If that still doesn't work well, we may switch to a different brand. Um, and, and and right now, a lot of companies are basically it's a it's a turf war right now, you know. Um, and uh, patients are basically judging by price, and 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 clinicians are as well because that's probably the biggest uh, hurdle for for patients um, accessing this medication, the expense of it. Uh, and so it's really hard to as a clinician to decide which product for the um, is likely going to be best for that patient. Um, you have to judge it on price on um, whether the, whether where it's cultivated or, or manufactured, um, whether it's, you know, GMP um, a- approved. And so, yeah, there's a lot of factors to come into it. Um, and, and right now I don't think there's a, a good flow chart of, you know, optimization of what, what product is, is best for for what patient are there any are there any trends though you might have seen in in your experience like say specific regions of the world oh. type so obviously that you know looking cultivate mitch um yeah. i'm sorry to uh to jump in here but it's just lagging a little bit uh mm-hmm. on your end i wonder if you can perhaps just uh jump on the old hotspot but I think Mitch was just querying around whether or not there's any trends with there are specific regions in the world where you know the product's going to be good if it comes from there um, or, you know, particular growers. We don't have to name any any names of, of product providers. Um, we tend not to do so on the, on the podcast anyway. But, yeah, any trends that you've, uh, you've observed with, with products? Yeah, and obviously um, we would... Not, not, not supposed to be... Yeah. Oh, sorry, I'm obviously lagging. Um, but uh, we'd obviously not be talking about isolate products, would we, in this vein? Because um, isolate would not really matter where, where the product's from or what strain because it's literally just that one compound. Mm, mm. 
yeah, and, and that and, and that's a that's a good side point. You know, we 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 know that you know full spectrum or broad spectrum products are probably going to be more efficacious than um, than CBD isolate. But from a geographical perspective, I I I probably even though I've prescribed it for a lot of patients, I I don't get a good feel as to which geographies have the um, have you know a better strain or or more effective type. Um, cultivar uh, uh I'm, I'm not sh- i'm not entirely sure if it's geographically driven i think it's more about like the underlying genetics of the plant that they're using to grow um to, to produce their medicinal cannabis out of and uh i think it will be very um company specific in, in how much r&d they're spending on on this stuff uh and and, and trying to work out which is the best uh genetics and i don't i, I haven't got a good feel as to you know um, how to how to decide by geography at this stage? Maybe you guys can you you, you guys have some experience and you can comment on that. Um, oh, we, we could, but it would possibly not be the most neutral comment. So we'll, <laughs> we'll leave that one for another okay. time. I assume, um, Mitch, at, at some point we'll um, we will have an episode of this where we'll do a deep dive into you know, cultivation practices, extraction methods and that sort of thing. But we'll spare you all of that now, David. (laughs) David's correct in in the sense that you can, you can grow different genetics from different regions in many parts of the world, given you've got the right uh, greenhouse, you've got the right conditions, um, you know, if you're doing an outdoor grow. So he's not wrong in in that respect. Um, uh, I think maybe the point we were trying to get at is there's different regulations in different parts of the world, which mean that the different quality standards um, dictate the types of products that might come from specific regions. Um, but, but in saying that um, I think we can, we can probably move on to the, to the next part, which um, I wanted to know specifically was just the general questions that, well, two things, the general questions that you get asked, what are like the top three questions you get asked by patients? Like just so we can demystify and let people know from the outset, you know, you know, avoid them having to ask the next doctor the same question, whoever's tuning in. And then on top of that, um, I've just gone completely blank. I had my question in my head, but maybe answer that first and I'll come sure. back to the next question. Top three questions. Uh, what are the top ones uh, will be, will I get high from this? Uh, I, I hear this, you know, every other consult, you know, am I going to get high? Cause my, most patients, when they come see us, they don't want to get high. You know, um, it's only a very small proportion of the population that actually want to use this recreationally. Uh, most patients are actually after relief of their symptoms. Um, and they've and often heard good things. That's why they come to us. So, um, well, I get high and I always tell them, look, um, there is going to be a dose where people will get high from, you know, like they, they can get high from. Um, we know the, um, the dose to get, you know, medically speaking, we, we call it euphoria. Um, there will be a dose where you get euphoria and everybody's threshold to getting that is, is, is different. If you've never used it before, you know, your threshold is going to be really low, you know, and if you exceed that, you, will, you might get dizziness, you might feel euphoric, you might feel sort of spaced out and, and buzzed or whatever, stoned, whatever words you want to use. Um, and you might get the munchies and, and you might get um, quite drowsy afterwards. Um, but the good thing is, you know, when we administer medicinal cannabis, get people to use it, we always start at a really low dose, you know, uh, a dose far below what theoretically should be causing you to get, um, get high on. So, you know, say, um, let's say on average, most paper patients may need to take, you know, 30, 40, 50 milligrams of THC or more to get high. We would start at levels at one to 2.5 milligrams. So, you know, maybe one tenth of um uh, or lower of um of of a dose that to get people high and we and we titrate very very slowly and we find that the therapeutic level is generally below the level that you would get side effects from um if you titrate it slowly like that uh and you know even if you were to get some side effects at really low doses most patients tend to tolerate it over time so if there's mild side effects you know, some, some doctors will probably say, you know, like if it's very, very mild side effects, maybe just continue on this really low dose for a few days and it will generally settle down. Your, your brain gets adjusted to that and, um, you know, the therapeutic effects will continue to be there, um, but without the side effects. And, and then you can titrate further if you need more therapeutic effects and you can readjust to that next level. Um, 
So that, that's probably the most common um, question I get, you know, why I get high, but I, um, yeah, mo most of our, I would say the overwhelming majority of our patients will not be getting high. I think if the patients are getting high, they're, they're doing something wrong. And do you ever, do you ever have a minority of patients that are seeking to get high and when you disappoint them by saying that it's likely this CBD medicine won't get you high, that you're sort of met with uh, a disappointed patient or? Yeah, that's, yeah that's a good point. I forgot to, you know, um, mention that the CBD doesn't cause people to get high and then it's the THC that gets the people high. Um, I think we pre-screen our patients really well. You know, we often get a referral from the doctor, from the uh, treating practitioner or the GP, and we ask them, you know, do you have a concern that this patient might um, is going to be using medicinal cannabis or, or wants to use medicinal cannabis? And then, you know, there, there are things you do in the consult. You tell them about the costings, the price, you know, um, how hard it is to access and how to take it. And you get generally get a feel of whether people are seeking it recreationally or not. We don't get very, actually get very, very few patients seeking it recreationally because uh, I think they talk amongst themselves and they know that, that medicinal cannabis is actually far more expensive than recreational street cannabis. So yeah. what's the point for them, you know? Um, Whereas the people who come to us, I would say 95% plus will, will be um, people, you know, really using it genuinely or wanting to use it genuinely for uh, therapeutic purposes. So, but, you know, if I get a sense that, that someone's, you know, wanting to use this recreationally, I mean, I, I'll just tell them, look, I, uh, there, there's no way we can help you access this because um, this is not the, not the, not what it was designed for. Medicinal cannabis is being used as a medicine, you know, yeah, we're not here to get you high. And we can actually work out with, if somehow they get through that, that net, you know, that, um, that safety net, you know, and, and they, they, you know, they get a script off us. The good thing is you can work out quite quickly how much they're using by how quickly they come back to get a re repeat script. So we usually only give them one, one script, one bottle at a time, you know, and initially just to see how quickly they go through it. And then you work out the dose that they're taking and If they're taking far more than you expect them to, then you know, look, this is probably this person is probably using this recreationally, and we probably should be stopping it from here. Yeah, interesting. But that actually, I think you you brushed on the other question I was going to ask, which is that um, that diligence piece that as a GP prescribing cannabis, or especially at a place, you know, that at a, at a clinic that is, you know, has a kind of specialization to some degree in that in cannabis specifically or is at least, you know, dealing with cannabis groups regularly. Um, your requirements uh, to speak to, say, a, a patient's regular GP versus just seeing somebody off the street as a GP, um, love to know a little bit about your process there in terms of that screening process. Do you, I know that you require referrals in a lot of cases. Is it always the case? Do you have to have a referral? Um, what, what's kind of the, the situation there? Yeah. And if I can just tack on to that, um, yeah, this idea of, you know, someone just choosing to go to their regular GP to get, um, a conversation happening around medical cannabis versus coming to a doctor such as yourself that has a special interest. Um, yeah. Do you need the referral from the original doctor? And as part of that screening process, I know we've just given you a lot to, to answer, but if you can also speak to the, um, you know, the extent to which you ask about a patient's mental health history and how that um, plays into your clinical experience and, and what you might actually um, do with that information. Yeah. So is it absolutely necessary to have a referral? No, there is no real legal requirement that we have to get a referral we would like one and and we used to run on the basis that every patient must get a referral um so that to help us it, it's for it's, it's for information gathering basically we like to get the uh, a referral from the from the doctor to basically say tell us that your com the doctor is comfortable for us to have that discussion um, with the patient if if they wish to you know, or if they qualify for medicinal cannabis. So it was more of a, um, are you okay? Are you the referring doctor okay with us using this stuff? Um, and if the answer is no, then we, you, you know, we probably prefer not to do it. Um, uh, and, and two, it was to get, you know, gather information on, on like say a health summary or, or some scan results or some blood results that, we, that might be pertinent to the consultation. And so that reduces the, um, 
the amount of sort of investigations that we need to do to, to decide whether the patient is appropriate for medicinal cannabis. Um, so no, don't need, an, uh, don't need a referral. Um, we've started to become a little bit more lenient on, on not um, asking for a referral. If um, so, so what we started to realize is patients would go to their doctors and their doctors uh, would be completely against it. You know, they wouldn't even consider it and basically just you know, scrunch up the referral pad and just throw it away basically and say, no, I'm not, I'm not doing this. Um, you know, not, not even wanting to open that discussion up for patients. And, and so that, that, that was proving to be a hindrance for a lot of patients, even though it was their decision to, to make, um, the doctor would take that decision out of the patient's hands. Um, and, and, you know, what, whether you agree with that or not, it's, it, it's, it, is, it is up to the doctor's discretion as to what, what therapies they, they want to um, uh, treat their patients with. So, you know, obviously, you know, patients can't just, you know, walk into any doctor and demand uh, a specific therapy. So, um, and so and I, I, see, I see both sides of that. Um, Although, can I just jump in and ask, mm. in a, when a doctor is vehemently opposed to medical cannabis, and I presume you've met a few, probably not at the medical cannabis conferences you've been to, but um, I'm just interested, what do those doctors, you know, clearly if a patient's coming to them seeking some sort of level of clinical justification for trying it, then they're there because something that that doctor has currently given them isn't really working for them. You know, either they're not getting mm. efficacy from the product or then they've got no side effects. So even the most sort of, shall I, for want of a better term, conservative doctor that chooses to sort of disregard any potential therapeutic benefit of medical cannabis, they're still in a tricky situation in that regard in that they are dealing with a patient that isn't happy with their current treatment plan, right? So does that then mean that that doctor has to explore perhaps other treatment options that might be considered more traditional or conventional yeah, exactly. Uh, I think, you know, um, if a patient raises the issue of, uh, of, a, of a therapy with any, any therapy, it could be medicinal cannabis, it could be anything else with, with the doctor. I think the doctor has to make a judgment themselves as to whether they believe this therapy might be useful in this. And is, is this the right setting to be using this? If they don't feel like it, then they've got two options. They can refer to somebody else who, who may have a better grasp of what that therapy could do. Um, so obviously, you know, if you refer, if, if someone comes to a GP about uh, an ankle fracture, you know, then the GP may not be a, be the right person to to be able to fix the fracture. You know, you may have to see an orthopedic surgeon. It's same same sort of thing with with medicines. If you're not if you're not comfortable with that medicine, you may want to you know um, get the patient to see somebody else who is comfortable with that. So that's option one. Or option two is you suggest a different therapy. Um, the the issue comes where you know. The, the doctor just goes flat. No, I don't want to, you know, you know, this is not a right therapy for you and they don't have a good justification for it or don't have um, a management plan that sort of um, helps the patient move forward in, in what they want to do, what, what they want to achieve. Um, and we see that quite a lot. Um, you know, it's uh, it happens in all sort of industries, I suppose, but um, it, it why do you think a lot. that happens? Or why would you, why would a doctor just be, a flat no in your in your opinion or in your experience this is there's quite a there's a few reasons um first one is probably there's still a very strong stigma around medicinal cannabis um you know i i, I think most doctors will will be fearful um about the, the things that they hear on the media or that they've been taught by um other people or other colleagues of them you know usual stigma there's stuff that you guys hear about you know um it, it could be addictive it's a gateway drug it just leads them to um dependency it can cause schizophrenia all sorts of these stigmas which all in all most of these have been disproved i mean all, i think all of pretty much all of these have been dis disproved and, and it's uh, difficult uh, to argue that opioids are necessarily safer um quote unquote but uh Mm. Yeah, it's extremely difficult because we know, um, I don't know exact numbers for Australia, but um, something like 70,000 um, Americans die every year from pharmaceutical grade opiate overdoses. Um, and and these, are, these are prescription medications. So the medical fraternity, I believe, has something to answer for um, when a lot of their patients are, overdo are overdoing their um, medicines and actually sort of accidentally um, 
inducing lethal doses. And it's, mm. it's, it's extremely scary. And, and, and that number runs in the thousands in, in Australia as well. I don't know the exact numbers, but um, it's, it's, it's terrifying. Um, opiates are, I think there's, there's a trend to realizing the, the medical fraternity is starting to realize opiates aren't a good long-term therapy for chronic pain. Yeah. Um, but it was all that it had. And also it was promoted like crazy by big pharma, unfortunately. Is there such a, a, leth- a thing as a lethal dose of medical cannabis? Yeah, good point. There, um, nobody has um, been able to, there's been no documented case of a, a lethal dose from uh, pure cannabis alone. Obviously, cannabis if it gets people a bit high or they get cognitively impaired, you know, and they were driving, of, you know, they could certainly hurt themselves. But from a direct overdose of cannabis, there's been no single reported case. Um, and, and that's completely, it completely flips the script compared to opiates or benzodiazepines where, you know, an alcohol, you know, all these other medications, uh, or, or things that people take can, can have lethal doses. You know, you compare that to over the counter paracetamol, a lethal dose is 15 to 20 tablets. Yeah. And children can buy this off the, off the counter and accidentally yeah. overdose them. And, and, and we, we say that's safe. And, and yet, if you consume, you know, a whole a full bottle of medicinal cannabis, you know, you might you you might get some side effects, but you will not die from it. Um, and I think that's that's something that people don't realize yet. And I don't I don't think the medical fraternity really sort of touts that enough, um, you know, to to say that you know the safety profile is off when it comes to opiates. Opiates not only can cause a lot of side effects, but there is potential for lethal ingestion. I think it's, I mean, if anyone is watching this who um, is regularly taking opiates, I think that the information you've just provided is really, really quite valuable in just sort of saying, look, there are other um, treatment options available and it is worth exploring that um, because of those potentially damaging long-term effects, which you've alluded to. In um, saying that, I think it's always good to round it out with, you know, especially from the doctor's mouth, um, adverse events or, or things that you do see from mm. cannabis that that um, maybe don't always end in the desired outcome. Yeah, for sure. I, absolutely. Good good point, um, Mitchell. Uh, I think we, we've got to talk about the, the, the two main compounds of medicinal cannabis um, separately uh, because we often find, you know, like when people take, say, CBD alone or, or high CBD, low THC, um, preparations they don't really get too many side effects um cbd on, on its own is, is very well tolerated and then in the general um patient community i think most common side effects will be um occasionally some mild nausea um a little bit of um lethargy or sedation and and maybe some upset stomach you know like a little bit of diarrhea and that, that sort of thing but those are tend to be quite transient and and, and resolve themselves over a few days and and, and they're very, usually very mild i would say nine out of ten people will get pretty much no side effects when they took CBD on its own. Um, it's a THC that, that, that you have to be a little bit more careful about. Um, THC, you know, at low doses um, can, well, most often when we start with people at low doses, they don't feel anything, you know, and then get, as they get higher, the side effects will be dose dependent. So the more, the, the bigger the dose you take, the more potential risk for side effects you might get. And the most common side effects will be like dizziness, uh, drowsiness, um, increased appetite, um, and, um, yeah, sedation, what else? Um, occasion, you know, and, and the more you take, the more risky it is, um, to get, getting high, basically getting stoned. Um, there's a, there's a phenomenon that, uh, a lot of, let's say young recreational users will, will, will understand as couch lock, um, where you, you're, you're awake you've taken a lot of THC and you basically are on the couch. And you can't really move, you know, like you just, you don't have any motivation. You don't have the energy to get off the couch. And, 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 you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's like that quintessential stoner look, you know, you're just sitting on the couch and you don't really do much. Yeah. Mitch, um, <laughs> have you, have you ever experienced couch lock, Mitch? I've heard of it uh, actually. Uh, I've heard of it. It's um, yeah. I couldn't imagine yeah. Mitchell would have experienced it. They call it actually, that's how they sometimes separate sativa and indica. And they say indica into couch. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. And yeah. To, to note that, that, you know, that indica strain is more likely to give you a sedative 
reaction as opposed to a sativa, which might be a bit more cerebral. Mm. But, but I mean, all of that, because uh, one thing I also wanted to touch on was the monitoring role that you play um, in a patient's treatment. I imagine, so do you hear about that, any adverse events when you schedule a follow-up appointment to see how one of your patients is going with medical cannabis? Yeah, we do. We, um, we, we usually advise the patient and we, you know, either email the patient or give them, uh, give the patient a, a dosing diary. So we give them the regime. We tell them how to take it, how like every, you know, a few days you might increase the dose a little bit and, and you monitor your own progress over, over time. And we, 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 we review patients on a regular basis and we look through the, 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 the symptom diary, basically how well the pain's being treated, how well they're sleeping, their appetite, their mood, their, um, their weight, that, that sort of thing. And they try and keep a track of all of these things um, and, and to try and get, get a gauge of um, whether it's working or what, what side effects they might be getting. So, um, and we will often tell patients, you know, if as soon as you get side effects, let us know and um, we'll have a discussion about that, whether to bring back the dose a little bit, which is quite, you know, um, quite easy to do. They just drop the dose and they feel a little bit um, a little bit better in themselves, or they just tell them just completely stop it um, and try a different formulation. Yeah. yeah. But uh, the monitoring is very important, um, more from a compliance perspective, because you know if say if they accidentally took a dose that's five, ten times bigger than they would normally, they might just get quite stoned and, and, and quite high, and um, <laughs> you know go for go for a um, a Big Mac meal in, in the middle of the night, and then go, go for, <laughs> have, have, a, have a great sleep afterwards. But hopefully not. Uh, as, hopefully not drive through. Just not, to well, maybe maybe get someone else to get it for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a very U- U- Uber eats it. <laughs> yeah, very, very d- dangerous side effect. A Big Mac meal actually. Could, yeah, it can, it can be. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd um, imagine um, you know heart attack risk and stroke risk might might go up. Uh, <laughs> well, people aren't regular with this, I guess. That actually that actually ties into probably might be one of our last questions. I imagine because we've kept you for a while now, but um, very much interested in your experience. Uh, contraindications and uh, drug interactions. What considerations are there that, um, that you see? Who, who should be really kind of double or, you know, thinking about what, whether it's right for them in, in those situations? Mm. Absolute contraindications will be uh, pregnancy. We have no idea how, how it affects the um, unborn baby. So it's, an, it's a no-no for a pregnant woman uh, or for lactating women, uh, breastfeeding women. Uh, we say, no, we just don't have enough safety data around it. Um, then there's, you know, if, if you've got unstable heart disease or severe liver disease, it's probably not a good idea to use um, medicinal cannabis. Well, heart, uh, unstable heart disease, THC, um, uh, it's probably contraindicated. Um, the reason for that is THC, um, I don't know if you guys have ever tried THC, but um, uh, according to the, the literature, THC can induce a little bit of anxiety at high doses and they can increase, elevate the heart rate, cause palpitations, and it may destabilize someone's unstable heart um, rhythm or, or heart disease. Um, and medicinal cannabis is processed in the liver. So if, you've, if your liver doesn't work very well, um, probably not a good thing to be using it. Um, it probably has to be pretty severe um, liver failure to, to warrant um uh, you know, def- definitively not using medicinal cannabis, but um, that's another contraindication. And and then there's this uh, so- psychiatric uh, contraindication. So we know the literature has documented that recreational users using really high levels of THC um, in, in really young people, they may they may unmask schizophrenia. Not not like. So if they were already prone to schizophrenia, say with a family history, or I mean, naturally 1% of the population is, is, is prone to schizophrenia. Um, if you're young, under the age of 25, and you took recreational cannabis at really high doses with really high THC regularly, your risk of getting or unmasking your schizophrenia goes up. It may not actually be an increased risk overall, but it just may unmask it earlier than you would have naturally had it. So because of the, the evidence, we say, you know, even medicinal cannabis used with THC in young patients, we would prefer not to use um, uh, THC in, in, in pediatric patients or patients under the age of 20, 25, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. From, and I'm just on, on answering that uh, question around whether we tried THC. I wouldn't want to ruin my reputation by telling people I hadn't tried it. 
<laughs> but um, that's, yeah, that's what happens. When, yeah, yeah. When you we uh, we we have slightly different social circles, I think. Well, you know, <laughs> having lived in, in the United States and and working on farms and being surrounded by the culture, it's just a, a totally different approach mm. to um to to the substance. It's it's uh, you you walk in and grab it as though it were a, a bottle of wine. Um, in oh, yeah. Washington State or Colorado, where I was, so I'm reliably informed that you consumed it as though it were a bottle of wine. But um, <laughs> but anyway, um, I, <laughs> I I think I think in all honesty, though, like we're probably the last generation to really know that cannabis is illegal. You know, from any perspective, mm. um, I think you know uh, and. 5, 10, 15 years, whatever, how long, long it may take, uh, recreational, medicinal, well, medicinal cannabis is already legal, but recreational will be that way. And I think yeah. it's going to be a wave across the world like that. So it's going to be something that people will be able to buy, you know, at a, at a dispensary, at a pharmacy, at a, at a supermarket, maybe even like down the track. So, right. um, you yeah. You get I, it in I, Aldi in Europe now. Like, yeah. So, right. I, I imagine, yeah. you know, uh, things are changing when you see it, open up in southeast asia like thailand for example you know things yeah. are changing yeah but it's, it's isn't it terrifying that you know a few years ago people you know picked being picked up you know in thailand or southeast asia indonesia somewhere and they'd be thrown in, in the in the in the slammer for years or you know the rest of their lives or for carrying a little bit of cannabis um i think i think the leak like the in Singapore, it's still like if you if you had a more death than a joint penalty. or something like that it's death penalty it's crazy yeah and, and absolutely it's, crazy it's, it's literally native. It's a native plant in that region of the world as well. I, I think um, we've flagged. We won't uh, say the guest name, but we are going to be doing an episode where we discuss, yeah, some of these topics and the lasting devastating impacts of uh, Nixon and Reagan and the, this uh, so-called war on drugs. And I think mm. it's, yeah, certainly, I mean, the work that you do and the work that a lot of um, researchers um, and everyone in the medical profession who has um, you know come on board and embraced it as a therapy um, you know it's, it's just been so great to watch the transformation in Australia I know that's only really been in the last five years or so but um, but the momentum is is wonderful we're at a really exciting time um, you know in 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 its history here so yeah um, and on that note, look, I think we'll leave it there, but I know that Mitch and I have probably, you know, five, 10 minutes from, from now, we'll, we'll have another 40 questions that will populate our minds. We've got to let him get back to his real life. We'll let you get back to it. But I, you know, if you're game to do this again, we would love to have, uh, have a follow-up episode with you where we um we put you on the spot right at the end so you can't say no that's the whole <laughs> yeah. no no that's been fun I, I, i've had a I've had a great time guys thank you um you asked some really good questions and it's been a really fascinating discussion so happy to come come back yeah thank fantastic you. well we'll get you on to finish the other two questions if uh, what the most common questions you get asked because i think we only got through one oh, yeah, we only got so one, much yeah. other stuff that that's <laughs> just been an absolute wealth in information and we thank you greatly on behalf of everybody who's going to tune in and um on behalf of us as well so yeah thank you oh, not a problem thanks thanks for having me no worries david thank you we'll um we'll do this again soon take care sounds good okay all right cheers bye thank you.